Welcome to Lectionary Call-In for Tuesday, December 13th of 2022, where two laypersons, a pastor, and an academician gather for about 45 minutes each week to discuss the Gospel Lectionary for the coming Sunday, and this Sunday is December 18th, the fourth Sunday of Advent. Each Tuesday, we call in from wherever we may be at 6.30 a.m. Eastern Time, and for our friend Charles Willard, of course, in Central Time, it's 5.30 a.m. Our team's working to be faithful to year A, and that puts us in the Gospel of Matthew on Sunday. And we hope this discussion will provide areas of focus and reflection. Here's what we do. We develop perspectives independently after the lead-off person shares some formative questions. And then in this virtual discussion room, we share, encourage, and challenge each other. And here are the folks joining us in today's discussion. Sarah Mickelson, Tampa. Charles Willard, Minnesota. <laughs> Bill Hall, St. Petersburg, Florida. And I'm Don Upton. I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina. Good to see everybody. Uh, and uh, just a heads up for uh, as we go into uh, the holidays, uh, the next uh, the next Sunday is Christmas, and the next Sunday after that is New Year's. And then once we get through New Year's, uh, as we've discussed in the past, we're going to look at uh, the uh, Sunday gospel readings of year A during Epiphany through the lens of the letters in the lectionary. So we're not veering from the gospel, but we'll be using the, the letters as specified by the lectionary committee. And so it heads up as we get into Epiphany. Well, we'll begin with Act 10, and most of it will be in 1 Corinthians. So to prepare to look at Matthew through that dimension, we'll commend especially First Corinthians to you, uh, working in chapters 1, 2, and 3 during that time. But for today, and the Sunday Gospel coming up, I'm going to go ahead and read Matthew 1, 18-25. Now, the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being righteous man, and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look. Virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And when Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had born a son, and he named him Jesus. And that's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And I was reading from uh, the New Revised Standard Version. Well, we have uh, three formative questions, as we do in most weeks, and this is going to start with you, Sarah Nicholson, so head up, heads up. Uh, I, I'm using a, a piece of uh, the 20th verse uh, in this reading, uh, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. And uh, the question is, this counsel, do not be afraid, appears throughout Scripture, and I would say especially in Matthew. But here's a message or an intervention into Joseph's life with that same stage setting, do not be afraid. 
And I can think of many starting points for the message that could have taken place, but the message foundation was do not be afraid. But it begins with fear. Why do we begin with fear here to set the stage? Sarah? Well, my first instinct is to say something is happening that's unexpected. That's a disruption. And my general reaction when that occurs is fear, and I resist completely change in any shape or form. So I'm going to open with, I think that this is evidence of a fear of the unexplained, um, fear of an anticipated path shifting unexpectedly, fear of the future suddenly having to be reimagined, fear of an, ex- an unacceptable thought of infidelity, fear of the full and unorthodox engagement of parenting Mary's child. Um, can't really say it's someone else's child. It's God's child. So with all of that having put as the backdrop, Joseph is like, that's a whole lot of new and a whole lot of unexpected. I think what I'll do is just, quietly let Mary go after this and and not step up to that opportunity. So I'm interested in the idea that Joseph changes his course of action because of the visitation of an angel in his dream. There are four dreams that Joseph has, but this is one of them. And in each of those dreams, something important happens and Joseph has to change his behavior or his course of action, right? So they go to Egypt as a result of one of these dreams to avoid Herod. So there's this beauty that Joseph is accepting and has the courage to do something that's unexpected. And I think that takes a lot of courage for us. And um, so I I think that that's part of it is the fear of change, the fear of what's expected, the fear of what's unexpected. And I'm wondering if that resonates with you. Thank you. Bill Holm, what do you think about the foundation for this passage laid on Do Not Be Afraid? Um, Here's where I went when I worked on your question, Don. Uh, and I will. I think any Bible study or engagement with Scripture is a both and. What was the original context, but also what is our context today? Otherwise, it's just an academic uh, exercise. So, in my comments, I will refer a couple of times to my own journey. Sybil and I, my wife and I, had the privilege of ten days in Israel a decade or so ago, I remember well standing in Nazareth. And the most powerful impression that was made on me was how close, literally, how closely people lived, in some cases side by side, a small village, so that um, this wasn't Tampa or St. Petersburg. Uh, this was a small, small town, even smaller than the town in which I grew up, where there was one gas station, one general store, and everybody knew everybody. So that 
I have empathy for Joseph. I, I sense tension. Remember, it says he was a righteous man. However you want to interpret that word, he was a good man. And I think this story commits it. He wanted to do the right thing. His social norms demanded that he divorce her. <clears throat> Many of us are familiar that engagement then was somewhat like we think of marriage. They weren't to live together, but they they were committed. And the way to end an engagement was a divorce. His, his society told him to divorce her. But this messenger says... Don't. And it's interesting, and I'm making a lot of uh, a few words. It says he planned to dismiss her quietly, at least compassionately. And the next word is but. <laughs> but just when he had resolved to do this, an angel appeared and said, Joseph, son of David, that there's power in that. He was in Matthew's chronology is in the line of David and Joseph, not of Mary. Technically, Joseph was not, we believe, Jesus's biological father. Um, so I, I, I feel for the teaching and the fear that Joseph felt. Now, I grew up in a culture in the South that said in terms of race, separate but equal, I start college, I become a history major, my eyes are open, I see it as evil, and when I came home on Christmas vacation and people, family, and others were speaking out of the separate but equal culture, there was a tension. Do I say something? Do I reveal how my journey has changed? In a few cases, I did and was met with anger. There, it's, it's an analogy. Analogy, not identity. I'm not saying it was exactly the same, but uh, I think the fear was gone and a very real fear, maybe in a sense a necessary fear. My culture tells me to do this. My faith is leading me here. I think that's what uh, the fear was about. Um, and I think Joseph was a righteous person, but it reminds us that doing the right thing is not easy. Thanks for the question. Thank you. How about you, Charles? This uh, starting point of do not be afraid, do not fear. I'm going I'm to pass with appreciation. Uh, I will accept your passing. With uh, with uh, with uh, understanding, and uh, uh, but uh, I also uh, will be interested uh, as we go through if there's a way to tie uh, the fear into every question that's coming in as we go. Uh, I uh, I'll take a crack at it too. It, it builds on uh, I think Sarah what you said um, because there are so many dimensions of how fear plays out, especially in this mm -hmm. gospel. And in the year coming up, since we're going to live in Matthew for the most part, uh, I, I think we can revisit fear all the way. Uh, this is the gospel with the torn veil. This is the earth shaking. This is mm -hmm. the dark crucifixion. This is the, this is the gospel of the Great Commission. 
this is the gospel of, uh, of great violence. This is the gospel of domesticity. So I think uh, fear is an obstacle to context and understanding and teaching throughout Matthew. We see it all the time. Uh, it must be a front end of conversation uh, to clear the table. So the work of thinking and planning and remembering can take place. In this case, you know, it says, do not fear to take Mary. You know, there's even context. It's domestic uh, in many ways, you know. Be the partner, be the father. You know, he doesn't even, he doesn't even know he's going to be a refugee at that point. Uh, but just in, engage. Uh, so just to give you a sense of what's to come in Matthew, uh, I won't even do the citations. Do not be afraid to go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. They will see me there. That's post-resurrection. Do not be afraid. How about this one? Do not be afraid, for I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. That's Matthew. Do not be afraid. All these contexts, and I, I think just for thinking as we go through, uh, and Sarah, I think, I think this is where you are going too, is uh, the removal of fear is a very important part of our walk, uh, of our ability to understand context, to recall scriptures, to remember Jesus, that all these things are not possible uh, without the removal of fear. It's, a, it's almost like a Christian discipline that is said. Jesus appears. Do not be afraid. Uh, why? Uh, is, it, is it as simple as because you're not listening? You not, will not recall what you saw, what you heard? I'm thinking back to the prior weeks in Matthew, in Advent, you know, uh, are you the, uh, uh, John reaches out, are you the Christ? You know, are you the one that's coming? Uh, you know, and Jesus is like, have you seen? <laughs> it's almost like every time these questions come up, Jesus is like, first of all, don't be afraid. Let's clear our head. Are you watching? Are you listening? So I think the work of thinking and planning and remembering can take place. And here we are in a domestic setting saying, do not be afraid in terms of the partnership of this, of this couple and what needs to take place. So those are, those are my thoughts. Uh, let's go to the second question. And Bill Hull, I'll send this your way. Why or how does the telling of Mary and Joseph's story matter to the Gospel of Matthew as a whole, while others may tell it differently, uh, you know this is this is an important part of Matthew, especially as we're we're putting it into Advent. So why is the author of Matthew saying this Mary and Joseph story, specifically the Joseph perspective, matters mm -hmm. in the book? What do you think, Bill? Yeah, and, and I think it does, and we'll come back to this, I think, as we continue to journey through uh, Matthew, because I think uh, what's introduced in Matthew's narrative here uh, is a signal of, of what's to come. Uh, I'll make this note briefly. There's not a direct parallel to this exact story. The closest is in Luke 2, where it it says the decree went out. They uh, traveled from Nazareth to Jerusalem, etc., and were registered, and the baby was born. So Luke introduces the birth narrative uh, a, a different way. Um, one of my favorite commentators on Matthew is Frederick Dale Bruner in a two-volume commentary. And for the sake of 
conciseness and time, I will read a portion of a quote where he addresses your question, Don. He says, seen in the context of a whole gospel, with its especially, and he doesn't just mean the gospel of Matthew, the, the seen in the context of a whole gospel, with its especially embarrassing crucifixion, the embarrassing pregnancy of Mary, the first narrative in the gospel may have served Matthew's purpose by showing at the very beginning that God's ways are now our ways and that God's righteousness is not our righteousness. Matthew likes to surprise readers by preaching the gospel in unexpected ways. That will continue throughout, I, I would say, throughout all four Gospels. Uh, and I, that phrase, God's ways, are, and I would modify it's like, God's ways are now to be our ways because God's righteousness is not our righteousness. Back to your first question, Don. God's righteousness, as interpreted by culture, was Mary is disgraced, she should be dismissed. Some would even argue in that culture she would become an alien. A, she would be cast out of the village on her own with no safety net, no support. So why is, does he tell it differently? I think uh, Bruner concisely uh, summarizes my thoughts on your question, Don. Thank you. Thanks for that quotation. Uh, Sarah, what do you think? I think in Matthew we get the perspective of Joseph. Luke gives us Mary's perspective, but I think Matthew specifically focuses on Joseph's perspective. Um, I think this gospel offers a of Joseph moving with doubt toward faith. And through Matthew's words, we're offered a Joseph that seems to hold space for the rest of us. For those in whom doubt walks hand-in-hand hand with the development of faith, I think that um, Joseph has, the on has only this revelation to submit his actions that move him forward into God's plan. Um, I think Matthew offers us a story of God with us and us with God from the very beginning. I think that's the sweetest bit. Um, Joseph can only do what Joseph is going to do because God is with him. And God's plan and Joseph's plan become one. I think that's that's the best part of this bit for us is that this is this is a very real, very um, <clears throat> concerned participant in what God's planning to do, and He invites Joseph in, and Joseph has to go. Okay, I'll I'll go with you, and I think that that's that's kind of the way the gospel works is God invites us in, and we have to go, okay, okay, I'll go with you. And so it's that commitment. Thanks. Yeah, coming to you in a second, Charles, I just want to uh, just get build on what you both were saying. Is uh, I needed a reminder this week when I was reading, Sarah, of what you just laid out. Joseph is a source. It's just, it's just a story. I mean, there's, you know, commentators believe, then uh, how do we have this? We have this because the voice of the 
the father uh, or the voices of the siblings that knew Joseph are here. That's what this is. This is the telling of Joseph's encounter with the eternal. And I mean, even though in a way it's like, well, where, where did the text come from? I'd never, I just hadn't taken it all the way back because I think so much about the when this was written and the generation down the road. But he is the source, uh, and that means the family is the source of this. And I'm attracted to the fact that we spend so much time looking at Mary's encounter, and we look at the Magnificat and the other uh, readings that come up in Advent, depending on what cycle we're in in lectionary. <clears throat> there are two independent encounters with the Eternal, all on the same page, uh, to make it simple. And so I, I, I like this connection because, <clears throat> again, tying it back to the whole Gospel of Matthew, it is a gospel of bridging things. You know, it's a, it's a gospel of conversion. Why was it written? To provide context of the past and the future for those that are becoming a part of the new Christian church, of bridging. And I think this is a, a bridging piece of the gospel as Joseph has, has provided this information and moves forward. It's the context with the scriptures and the context with life and family. Uh, one of the first bridges, uh, a father adopting a son and accepting his name from the eternal. It's a bridge. Uh, a father applying uh, the disciplines and the care and the trades of the family when otherwise it wouldn't have taken place. It's a, it's a bridge. And it gets us ready for the other fearful using fear, the fearful bridges that are taking place as the gospel moves forward. I'd say to the point where here's a scary one. You know, this this at least looks like a family as it comes together. And then not far, you know, Jesus is going to ask, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And then he's going to point to all of his followers. There's my mother. There's my brothers. It's this bridging and bridging and bridging and crosswalking that's taking place. And I think this takes, this sets the tone uh, for the book that we're going to be working with uh, for the year. Charles Willer, how about you? Uh, how does the telling of the Mary and Joseph story matter to the Gospel of Matthew? Why, why this Joseph story? I want, I want, excuse me, I guess I'm all, we're all coughing here. I wanted to share uh, the conclusion of an article by Fred Craddock on this passage. And he says, Everybody is already having Christmas except the church. The preacher is urged to dip into Luke at least one Sunday early. A few angels and a shepherd or two will surely get us out of this dark waiting room. We're like a student who responded to Robert Frost at a poetry reading. Frost is reading from the familiar promises to keep and miles to go before we sleep. A hand shot up. You spoke of promises to keep. What promises? Frost replied that if I had wanted you to know, I would have told you. When we were tired of waiting for long promises to be revealed, Matthew, that's good for us. He chides us. If you think four weeks is a long wait, join me in paying page one of the book of Genesis of Jesus Christ, and we will journey through 42 generations, at the end of which we will meet Joseph, the husband of Mary, whom Jesus was born. Think of Matthew as a birth announcement. It is brief. All the words of the authors with neither Joseph nor Mary having speaking parts. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Okay. 
Uh, well, let's get get on to our next question. These are all uh, inter, inter overlapping questions. Uh, Sarah, uh, I'll, I'll offer a first comment, but I'm coming to you uh, after that. What are your thoughts on the author's need to include the story of Joseph's engagement in the naming? And I realized as I read it this morning, as I prepared for this podcast, that word engagement, I, I didn't intentionally make it that I didn't mean it to be as multi-dimensional. I wrote it in terms of engagement in the naming process and not Joseph's engagement to Mary, but it can take that way as well. And uh, just the, the reason I asked it is not just because we're dealing with son of David, but this obligation of a father uh, is being carried out, the acknowledgement of a family and lineage and legacy and future in the past, and I am uh, moved uh, this year that the first saying of the name to him is from the eternal. Even though it is vested in the past, and he is from the house of David, and, 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 the first saying of the name to him is from the eternal. Uh, and the immortal nature of the name, naming, uh, the remembrance, another in a line among humans, plays out beautifully with the eternal naming of the child. Uh, and the name of the child is on our lips today. And I guess what, what I'm trying to say is it's tied to tradition in terms of it doesn't matter what tribe, what community, where are you from on the planet, there's usually some system that honors the family, that honors the past, that honors the ancestors. I mean, it's simply put, I, my name is Junior. I am a second. I'm not a third. I'm not a fifth. I'm not a <clears throat> They're surrounded by Romans, by the way, who just obsess over the numbering of siblings, too. Uh, but that tradition is still honored, but honored from the eternal. And what I'm saying is my my family's names may be there in hundreds of years without a lot of context, but it takes some work. You have to say junior. You have to make connections. And it, yeah, it, it's overwrought almost. <laughs> Because you can't really get back to the past. You can't get back to what the family really was. Jesus' name is on our lips today. And he has no ancestors. He has the little children. He adopts everything. He adopts just like he was adopted by Joseph. But his name is on our lips today without the need for the secession or the naming of the overwrought memory or the protection of those who've passed. Sarah, I'll go back to, you know, in, the, in the, many of the Gospels, they go to the tomb to memorialize, to take care of the body, to try, to work, to remember. But his name is on our lips today because he's alive. And in uh, the beginning was the word, which is I'm leaping into a Gospel, but I think Bill Hull will be there next week on Christmas Day. At that, I'm going to look towards that in the lectionary uh, for this year. Next week, you shift to John, and it's going to begin. And the beginning was the word. And so we have that family, that connection in a way that is cosmic as Joseph is listening and accepting this, having put fear aside. Sure, what, what, do, you, what do you think about, uh, about this, the uh, Joseph's particular engagement and the naming of Jesus? Well, I was happy to read Mark Davis's blog this week. Um, 
specifically his blog for December 11th, and uh, his blog's name is Left Behind and Loving It. And he lifts up in verse 21 these this sequence of words. She will, you will, he will. And it says all three verbs here are future and assigned roles to Mary, birthing, Joseph, naming, Jesus, saving. The subjects of she will bear, you will call, are implied in the personage of the verbs, but he will save has a pronoun attached to it, which I will take to signify that Jesus' role is the only one that is most emphasized in this verse. It's because Joseph stands with Mary that Jesus can save. It's the, the, the engagement of Joseph, the commitment of Joseph to protect and keep the baby and Mary safe that lets this whole gospel start to unfold. I think that, that there's something lovely about that, that God's commitment to save the world requires man's participation or human human participation. And I, I really liked that, that it, that it is Joseph's opportunity to affirm God's plan by naming the child Jesus, as he was told in a dream. I love that. It's like an affirmation right there. Boom. And thanks for bringing in to Davis. We'll work on this week. It's great. Hey, uh, Charles. We're, we're talking about Joseph's role in the naming. Why Why is that important here? I'll leave it to you all. <laughs> well, Bill Hall, you get last word. What do you think? <laughs> Sarah, I also was captivated by Mark Davis's that portion. Thank you for bringing that in. Don, this illustrates um, our process. When I read your question, I, my brain velcroed to engagement in terms of with Mary. Now, I saw the phrase in the naming, but when you introduced it just now, I went, oh, Phil, you didn't really focus on what Don asked you got captured by the word engagement. So I'll share both of my thoughts, what I plan to say about engagement to Mary and his involvement in the naming. Uh, very briefly, I'm, you're right, these questions overlap. I'm echoing my response to number one. Joseph being engaged to Mary and being a righteous man created tension between commitment and boundaries. Um, I'm committed to her, but she has violated social norms. As a pastor, I dealt with people. I believe in the sanctity of marriage. I believe marriage is for life. But there were people who said, Pastor, how much do I tolerate in order to maintain this marriage? Physical abuse, adultery, um, and the Bible reflects that. One of the Gospels gives no exception. There, there can be no divorce. Yeah, I think that's Mark. Another one says, except for reason of adultery. And if if it is Mark, then that was the earlier one, and the later writer goes, wait a minute. That rigid standard comes up against 
human reality. Are there no boundaries? Are there no limits? But Joseph uh, lived with that tension. Now, the naming. I remind us, as far as I know, it was the custom in that culture that the father named the child. Zechariah named John the Baptist, you remember? So that suggests to me that Matthew is, I think, going to lead us and reveal how Jesus wants to fulfill the law, but revitalize the spirit of the law. There's a tension there between exact reading of a boundary and then God's righteousness. Um, Jesus dealt with the woman taken in adultery. That's not in Matthew's gospel, but it's in John's. Um, that that whole tension between fulfilling the law is coming to a different understanding of what God means by righteousness. Righteousness is not meant to destroy relationships or people. It's meant to hold up a standard that we all fail to reach to. The New Testament word for sin, one of them means missing the mark. You aim the arrow you have good intentions, but you don't quite hit the mark. So um, Matthew is saying we're going to stretch the boundaries of the Torah, but we will honor the culture. Joseph is commanded through the God's messenger to name Jesus. I, I, I started to say like, I resonate with the tension that is introduced here. There's culture and tradition. Uh, Sybil and I are going to do many of the same rituals <laughs> that we've done throughout our marriage during this Christmas season, and yet it will be different. We, you may notice my background is different. We are having repairs in our apartment here in this retirement community. We're in a different. <laughs> we've been uprooted <laughs> Not exactly like Mary and Joseph, but uh, we're dealing with the tension of where, what box did we put that in? <laughs> anyway, uh, I look forward to the tension that Matthew is introducing. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. And uh, for those listening in, just a reminder, into the Christmas Gospel readings for the coming two Sundays. Christmas is on Sunday. New Year's is on Sunday. Bill Hall is going to lead us next week looking at John 1, 1 through 14 in the beginning. And then Sarah is going to take us back to Matthew. And then we will begin Epiphany where we'll look at the Matthew Gospel through the lens of the lectionary letter readings, which is mostly in 1 Corinthians. So, Get ahead with us. We're going to have to work hard together as a family and listeners. We're looking forward to that dimension. Uh, this podcast is made possible by Palmacy of Presbyterian Church. It's at 3501 West San Jose Street. That's in Tampa, Florida. And for more information, you can go to palmacia.org. That's P-A-L-M-A-C-E-I-A dot org. We always commend that site to you for great sermons, classes, prayers, reflections, outstanding music, opportunities to participate in communion. So check that out. And we like hearing from you. If you want to send us an email, send it to lectionarycallin 
at palmacia.org. That's lectionary call in at palmacia.org. And for now, uh, you're always welcome, and we'll see you next time.